Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. My guest today is Michael Hearns, a veteran law enforcement officer whose experience includes working undercover with Miami's Vice Intelligence and Narcotics Unit. Yes, like Miami Vice, and has also worked as a technical consultant on a variety of movies and TV shows. These days, Michael is the author of the Cade Taylor police thrillers, including Trust No One. We talk about his law enforcement career, how realistic police shows, including Miami Vice, actually are, and his dedication to authenticity in his novels. We also take on the realities of the creative life versus its portrayal on screen, and why it's worth answering your creative call anyway. Here's my conversation with Michael Hearns. Michael, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. Sure. So I start everybody off with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you find your creative side later on in your life? You know, I, I think I think there was a creative uh, stream in me for as a child. Um, in many ways, I worked and functioned in different organizations that didn't always allow for creativity. So sometimes that creativity came out in the, in the framework of what I was doing. But as far as like the actual flowing of literature or art or music or something, that kind of came later in life. Okay. So you weren't busy writing stories when you were a little kid? <laughs> no, I was telling stories. Uh, I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't really writing them, no. Uh, you know, as a child, it, my whole existence was playing soccer and running around in the neighborhood with the neighbor kids. So homework got a very passing glance from me and um, out, out the door I went. But I did draw a lot in class and doodle and I don't know if that was a sign of an of an absent mind or not, or a sign of creativity didn't get to come out. But um, I didn't write stories as a child. No, no, no at all. Okay, so before you started writing stories, you had a totally different career, and I'm hoping that you will tell us how that came to be, and then we'll get into how you started writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, my back, my background is, is a little varied compared to most people. I'm actually uh, coming out of college. My first true love was aviation marketing, and I worked in the aviation industry in marketing. And then when there was downturns and downsizing, and there was also just a whole lot of deregulation in the industry, I found myself needing and wanting a recession-proof job. So I, I stepped into law enforcement, um, not something I wanted to do as a child, and then have any aspiration to do that as a young man and very quickly found myself uh, in South Florida, in Miami, Florida and working um, in the street drug crime task force doing street narcotics. And then uh, very quickly within eight or seven months uh, migrated into vice intelligence narcotics bin, um, which is like, for, for for your audience, if I could give you an analogy, it was like the old Miami Vice, that I was the real Miami Vice. And I did that for 10 years, and I was undercover in the uh, Medellin and Cali drug cartels, working large-scale cocaine um, deals and money laundering, lots of high-volume money laundering cases as well. And, um, you know, two months became two years, and two years <laughs> became 20 years, and before you knew it, it was time to retire. And upon retiring, I started working uh, in film and TV as a technical advisor on uh, various products for A&E and NBC. And then um, kind of parlayed some of that experience into the literature world. Um, I got told a lot I should write a book. I think most people expected me to write some sort of tell-all. I really didn't feel that was where I wanted to be. So. Um, I created a fictional character and started writing a fictional series of books about a character named Cade Taylor. He's a detective in Miami and he's oftentimes vexed and challenged with some pretty serious things. And, um, I wrote my first book called trust no one that came out about three years ago. And the second book that quickly followed after that was called grasp and smoke, a Cade Taylor novel. And then the third book was uh, one more move, a Cade Taylor novel. 
So, first of all, I'm sure that everybody asks you this, but I'm curious to know how you feel about the Miami Vice comparison. How how realistic was or wasn't Miami Vice compared to what you actually did? Well, it's really strange because for us who lived and worked in South Florida, it was a normalcy, um, a skewed normalcy and a normalcy that had some serious, crazy ramifications to it. So when the national, and then we have dogs. So, so when the national and the international public uh, got a glimpse of Miami Vice, it was a very stylized version of what we were doing. But there is a case where life and art imitate each other, and then they start to intertwine with each other, and then eventually meld together. So in the beginning, it was um, not as stylized, but by the end of my career, we were also driving very expensive cars. And I I spent a lot of time in New York, a lot of time in Los Angeles working, and um, it it really became a, a situation of life and art coming together. Mm-hmm. So the version you see, I would say, is 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 very stylized and is also very uh, amped up, but there's also a lot of truth in that component as well. Okay, well, and then truth is something that I wanted to ask you about because since you have worked as a consultant for film and TV, I know my one of my cousins is married to a now retired Massachusetts state trooper. And she's told me that it's impossible to watch a police show with him because he will shout back at the TV about all the things that they're doing wrong. And I'm just curious what kind of things you're asked about as a technical consultant and how much say you have in how those things are portrayed for the rest of us. That that really has a lot to do with the confidence and the leeway that producers, the showrunners, and the director allow you to have. Um, in my case, I, I literally was cast right into the fire. I was working on a, on a movie in Cornwall, New York, um, kind of west of the Hudson. And I got a phone call. Can you be in Pittsburgh tomorrow to work on this NBC TV show? And right away, the next morning, I showed up on set. And within six or seven minutes of being there, I was asked to coordinate and choreograph an entire shooting scene of guns. I say shooting, I mean actual guns and such. And the actors, um, they're prepped to a point, but there's nuances to everything in life. And the longer you do something, the more you understand these nuances, shortcuts, these aspects. And I was working with some really good directors. Um, the directors I was working with have done a lot of television, a lot of Hawaii Five O, a lot of Twenty Four, a lot of Homeland. So they're used to um, this type of high speed action. So I was able to impart a lot of stuff that they really hadn't seen before, and I was happy about that. I was actually surprised, to be honest with you. I thought everyone knew these things, and they really didn't. <laughs> um, there is a sophisticated audience out there now. There's no longer just this pure acceptance of, oh, it's Dragnet, and these two guys are going to get in the car, and they're going to drive down Los Angeles, and then they're going to go interview this woman, and they're going to find out what her purse is. Uh, the audience is more sophisticated now, and that, that kind of goes with the books I've been writing, um, and Trust No One, Grass and Smoke, One More Move. I try to bring an element in the books that you don't normally see in books and in movies. Um, the, the books I write are incredibly authentic but they're not boringly authentic. I mean, every, every job has got its boring side to it. Um, I try to bring in uh, elements that the reader uh, does not see. And because I worked in film and TV, I write from a cinematic point of view. I'm not the type of writer who's going to say, oh, you know, me and Nancy, we got in the car and we drove to Kansas City. And then when we got there and we checked into the hotel and Nancy talked to the bellman, I'm like, well, wait a minute, hold on. What did you do when you drove? What did you stop? What did you eat? What did you see? So I bring a lot of description into my books. And there's also a lot of research. Everything is very authentic. And one of the things that, like, in in relation to your brother-in-law, the the former Massachusetts state police officer, when we Miamians used to watch Miami Vice, we would go. Because they would make a left-hand turn and then 
the next time they turned, they'd be like literally like 18 miles apart. And we knew that. So in my books, uh, from a geographical point of view, from a chronological point of view, everything's very accurate. Uh, when they order something from a menu, it actually comes from the menu of the restaurant. When they, the, 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 the cars they drive, the phones they use, the things they do are all very authentic. Uh, nothing is, is just made up. You know, there is no, I turned down Maple Street, I went to Elm Avenue and we went down Birch Road. It's their actual streets, actual places. And I, my next door neighbor uh, reads my books and holds Google Maps open while she reads it. <laughs> And she and she and she and she plots, you know, okay, they went here, they went there, they went there, yeah. So so yeah. The audience is sophisticated. Don't 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 underestimate that. They they know hardware, they know weaponry, they know some semblance of tactics. So you have to kind of bring an element for them they haven't seen or heard before. That's interesting, the comparison. I had not thought about I hadn't thought to go back as far as something like Dragnet and think about how how police work portrayal has changed over time but yeah but certainly if you go back that far you don't even have to think about it really at all whereas if you're comparing comparing something like miami vice or hill street blues to you know something that's out now it doesn't seem like it's as as different but i'll bet that it's more different than i would guess yeah. at first blush yeah it, 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 from a t television point of view but like every time the radio came on they would show a close-up of the radio like we the audience couldn't couldn't mm -hmm. put that. And what's interesting about Hill Street Blues is people don't realize this: that Hill Street Blues, the first year, based on all Miami stories. The oh, very really? first every episode was based on true Miami cases. And uh, Hugh Peoples, uh, former Miami Dade police officer, was a technical advisor, which is what I was doing with the other shows. And that's when they're very open, and they say, "You hear the dispatcher talk. Take a take a call on Peoples Drive. That's a little homage to him that he had helped them with that." So. Um, Miami Vice had very good technical advisors too. Um, some of them I actually worked with in the field. So those two shows were given uh, good technical advisors. They had good technical advisors, even though they're stylized and some of the plots were um, a little outrageous. They were still, you have to remember it's, it's even though it's 60 minutes to television and truthfully is 48 minutes with commercials and 48 minutes, we got to figure out there's a bad situation figure out there's a bad guy and we got to catch the bad guy. Uh, life isn't like that in real life. And that's why um, my books, which are no, my right hand, left hand, that's why my books, which are behind me, are all like 330, 340 pages because things don't get wrapped up in 48 minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I Before we delve more into the books, I, I am wondering, since you said that that you, you know, you've kind of been on both sides of this technical advisor thing. How is... How is the one side different than the other? Or how did how did working with the people from Miami Vice influence how you took on that that role in other contexts? Well, as a technical advisor for a film or TV show, um, you want to bring as much authentic authenticity and realism as you can, but you have to also keep them back in mind as entertainment. And directors will come up to you and they'll say i want the lead character to do this and you'll look in your head and you'll go that would never happen and then the director will say i i know that doesn't happen but i need a jeopardy moment and so you have to kind of suspend your own uh logic and recognize that this is television it is entertainment so there's going to have to be a melding there can have to be an amalgamation of what you're bringing from an authentic side and what they need from an entertainment side. So luckily for me, a good cast, good people, well-known actors, um, directors were amazing. So I, I was able to bring a lot to them and for them and in return, they put out a good product. Fair enough. So did doing technical advising work inspire the books that you ended up writing or are that, is that a totally different, piece of of process and work for you no i i would kind of call it an ignition point um i was living in miami but i was working sometimes out of manhattan and then i was also part-time living in malibu so you know all along the airplane trips back and forth and all along sitting on the sets and people think being technical advisor is super glamorous and i, I can understand that but truthfully i spend most of my time 
standing around with a bunch of teamsters watching him vape. Um, you know, I just, <laughs> no, it's like, I, you know, when I'm needed, I'm needed, but you know, I'm not always needed for, you know, a bedroom scene or for some, some other scene. So there's time to think there's time to reflect and time to, um, uh, collaborate in your own head. And since the, the first book, Trust No One, had been kicking around inside my head for about a decade. So in between working on the TV shows, there's some downtime. And I thought, well, and I remember I was sitting out uh, in Malibu and that's when I first started Trust No One. And then they went in the suitcase with me. And as I made my travels and my, my trips around places, it just got bigger and bigger until it became a book. And uh, I had an idea for a second book, but the main character in in my books is a detective named Cade Taylor. And there's been such a demand for Cade. Um, There really is a legion of Cade Taylor people out there that uh, really uh, galvanized the character. In a classic case, to give people what they want, um, continue to (laughs) write the series. And now we have, technically speaking, a franchise. Yeah. So did Cade kind of come to you? And I don't know, maybe he wasn't the first thing that came to you, but um, I'm just curious to kind of see how how this first story kind of materialized for you. Was he somebody that was, you know, largely based on people you know or, or on yourself? Or did he just kind of arrive more or less fully formed in your head and say, hi, let's write a book? You know, that's, that's a very good question. And I would have to say it's it's a collage of all of that. Um, I, I was doing some documentary work with um, Rankator, which is um, actually they have a, a, a piece premiering today on Hulu. Um, they did Cocaine Cowboys and all. So I did some work with them. And there's a, there's a fascination with that lifestyle. And there's a fascination with Miami. Miami's a city that you may not have lived in it, but you may have at least visited. And like Chicago, New York, or Los Angeles, it can do well for a backdrop. Um, people are people are still very intrigued with the narcotic world. They're, they're, they're intrigued with the men and women who are on either side of that line. And I had the opportunity to have a very spy-optic view of that world. Um, I not only lived in it, I also helped to create it. And I learned to thrive in it. And then I also learned how to exit from it, which is even more important. Um, and what's interesting is people people who do know me will read the books and they'll call me on the phone and they'll say, hey, I, I'm on page 210. I, I, I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. And I, I don't know what 210 means. I, let me see 210. Yeah, I got to read like I have to, uh, and I'll say, um, well, it helps if you, well, what's going on? And they'll go, oh, well, you just did this and you just did that. And I go, well, it's not me. It's Kate Taylor. <laughs> and they go, yeah, yeah, I know, but it's you. And I go, no, it's it's Kate Taylor. So I was able to bring in experiences from my life into these characters. And there's an, there's an, um, there's a elongation. And a like taffy, you're pulling it and you're pulling, you know, in the center is realism and then you're pulling in all these other things. And just like in the TV shows, you have to bring elements in to make it exciting for the reader. So uh, I won't call it embellishment, but it's part of the, it's part of the telling of the story. And um, in my books, once again, uh, everything that's referenced and mentioned, it could be something political, it could be something sports related. Those things really happened on those days. So. Not only can you hold my book up and read it, but you can actually know what day it is and what year it is by the actual events that are going on. So it's almost as if while you were living your life, Kay Taylor was amongst you doing things, but just unbeknownst to you. So I'm giving you kind of once again, using the words bioptic, I'm giving you a bioptic view of this world that would say you probably were cycling around, you just didn't realize. Mm hmm. I'm fascinated by how that intersects with the fact that this is still fiction. Like I I had a conversation last year with an author named Sarah Fine who writes psychological thrillers and is a psychologist. And she mentioned to me that her rule is that, you know, it has to be psychologically accurate. 
And so that is a huge influence on how she how she looks at the whole project. And obviously that is a huge lens for you too. But how do you bridge that with the things that kind kind of like what you were referring to with the the TV director and saying I need my jeopardy moment. You know, how how do you bridge that? Well, you know, to dovetail what Sarah was telling you is you're you're trying to um, bring your readers into this world that they may not ever be exposed to. But in the same respect, you don't want to lecture them and you don't want to make this an educational textbook. So through the art of storytelling and through the art of writing, you're not only bringing them along this journey, but you're also bringing them along this 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 path of knowledge. And so um, people are coming up to me now and they're saying, I had, you know, I, I had no idea that that's what that life was like. And um, they're seeing that Kay Taylor, you know, Cade is not a perfect individual. He, he starts out and trusts no one at the very, the very front part of a very vicious divorce. And he's, he's emotionally shattered by it. And he's trying to hold it all together and he's trying to keep it together. Uh, his emotions and his his pension for drinking. He's trying to keep all that under wraps while he is in this very intense vice narcotics situation. And then as the books progress, Cade is continuously still dealing with the divorce. So though he's not stuck in one location, he's moving along that situation. And if you've ever, I, I, I'm sure at, at, at both our stands as a life, we may have experienced loss and it could be a divorce or a death or whatever it may be. We recognize that that's not a one and done. Uh, there's a healing process and there's a grieving process and there's a, there's a whole gamut of emotions. And then throughout these three books and soon to be the fourth one, we were watching Kate as he maneuvers through his life and how he manages these things. Yet he still has to stay in the game. He can't just say, Hey, I don't feel good today. I'm, I'm I, I got to check out. And not only does he stay in the game, but the game is actually coming to him. And he has to really um, be be as sharp as he can be, even though he would love to just, you know, sit in a swimming pool and have a drink, you know. <laughs> well, and I would think in particular, you know, you mentioned being undercover for so long that that, that has to be. I mean, that's a situation you can't just say, sorry, it's five o'clock. I'm going home now, going no. back to my own life. That's got to be incredibly, incredibly stressful. And I'm curious to know how your experience with that influences how you portray that with Cade. Well, I think, I think, yeah, there's, um, there's um, a colise between uh, Cade and I in that respect. And as, as Michael Hearns, I, I fielded phone calls from, um, you know, some very nefarious people at my father's hospital bedside, my son's hospital bedside. I, you know, I, I became a professional time thief. I stole from work to, to do family things. I stole from family time to do work things. Um, you, you, it was 24 seven. I many times the phone rang at three o'clock in the morning and I rolled out of bed and I had to get going. There were times when I, would have breakfast at a waterside restaurant in Miami and have dinner that night in Los Angeles with no intention of being in Los Angeles. Um, I would, uh, you know, I was supposed to pick the kids up at school and now I'm calling from, you know, in my time, the air phone, the, remember the seat, the air phone, mm -hmm. I'm calling from the air phone saying I'm on my way to LaGuardia. I always had that winter clothes in, in my, in my car, uh, in, in, in winter in case I had to leave Miami. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of, um, it was very stressful, but I, I tell people all the time, it was, it was very much like being in a hurricane. I mean, you're in the center of a hurricane, it's very calm. It's all the stuff that's swirling around you. It's when you step out of the hurricane or you travel through the eyewall of the hurricane, you realize the destruction and the debris. And it was coming out of that lifestyle that you look back and you see, um, for lack of a better term, I'm not going to say destruction and debris with the family unit, but you see how they were impacted by that job and how other people were impacted by that job. Because for me, it was normal. You know, it was for me, yeah. it was I do every day, day in and day out. 
we had uh, people in my police department who had never even seen me. Uh, I was just a name on a piece of paper, if that at all. And when I came out of VIN, uh, Vice Intelligence Narcotics, when I came out of VIN and went back to regular police work, I was meeting people for the first time, and they were seven, eight-year veterans. And they were like, I'd heard about you, but I've never seen you. You know, it's like, yeah, here I am. Yeah, I'd imagine that that has to be some serious culture shock, too. You get used to this completely different way of existing. Yeah, if, if you're not grounded. I mean, I, I was lucky um, in the sense that my, my high school and childhood friends are still my friends now. So I didn't... Um, I, I didn't lose my, my touchstones and didn't lose the things that kept me uh, grounded to reality. Um, so yes, there were some transitional action problems and hiccups, but for the most part, it was a smooth transaction. You know, um, I came in the job wearing a uniform. I didn't care if I left wearing one. That's how it starts. That's how it ends. And all roads lead to the road. So <laughs> Well, and, and you also have a degree in criminal psychology. So, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how to ask this question, but I'm, I'm wondering both how that helped in your actual undercover and not undercover work and in how that influences how you draw your more nefarious characters in your books. Yeah. In all three books, I really haven't gotten into any type of serial action. Um, any type of uh, repeat violent offender behavior. Uh, they're all standalone books. Um, they're they're best if you read them in sequence because they are sequential. Uh, Kate is moving through his life. But if you read them out of order, you won't have any, any, um, any spoilers or anything like that. In my case, um, I had a degree in business, business economics. And uh, when I left Vin, Towards the back end of VIN, I got tasked with a serial homicide case in Miami and I had a successful resolve with that case. And I started to work very closely with a forensic psychologist. And, you know, police officers are very tribal. Um, they wear a certain uniform. They drive a certain type of car. They talk in a certain language. So they're also very territorial. So when my agency started loaning me out, to other departments to assist them with their own serial situations. It could be a serial rape, a serial burglar, serial arsonist, or a serial murderer. Um, I got a lot of pushback because there was a lot of um, indignation about why is this guy here? We can do this. We don't need him. So I went and pursued and got my degree, my master's in investigative criminal psychology, and I accepted for a PhD in the UK for it. I was one of only seven people accepted into the program, the only American accepted. And um, it was nearly uh, it was like four years before I retired. But the problem was that going back and forth to England with the VAT tax and the British pound versus the dollar and leaving the agency going back and forth, it was just very, very big imposition. So um, I, I got all the academic background of it. I just never finished a PhD, but I do have the master's in it. So then I started working serial homicide cases and I'm, I'm more known for the narcotic work, but I don't, um, not so much known for the serial homicide work, but I do. I was teaching a course at Champlain College in Vermont. And um, there are some other um, scripted and non-scripted TV projects that are asking uh, my assistance on. And then there's also real cases that get asked to me even in retirement, and you have to be very careful about that because um, if you have any any sense of empathy, if you have any sense of humanity, um, that stuff will really eat you up. So when my wife or someone says to me, "Hey, did you read that there's X amount of people being murdered in X, X amount of city?" I just no, unless I'm being directly asked to take part in it, I don't do it because my emotional absorption for all that is limited. Um, I call it putting on my dark clothes mm -hmm. when I am presented with a case that I need to look into for a police agency or, or sometimes, sometimes it's to grieving family. And that's really hard. Um, I, I like take on like flu symptoms for like the first 24 hours wow. until, I, until I get my equilibrium. I mean, after all, and I've worked on some, some pretty well-known cases, but 
as a consultant and um it doesn't get easier um i don't think it gets harder but it doesn't get easier and it's it's just it's like driving um i'm not really familiar with what part of the country you're in but it's like driving through the lincoln tunnel or driving over to golden gate bridge it's it's something you have to do to get from point a to point mm-hmm. b but in that transitional um mo- moment um yeah i take on a lot of uh, stuff and and also uh, in 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 the vein of of this podcast there has to be a sense of creativity also in that investigation you have to be able to look at these situations differently than the average person and a lot of people say oh you know i i let the i let the uh i, I get in the serial killer i let the, i get in the serial killer's head and the reality is you let him get into your head and it's a whole different uh that sounds so much more disturbing than getting into their head too. Is that, is that an accurate reaction? Would you say? No, that's an accurate reaction. And what it is is basically it's easier to throw someone out of your house than is to throw to get yourself thrown out of the house. That makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if I let you in, then I can close the door. But if you let me in, I gotta let you have to show me how to get out. Oof. <laughs> yeah, it gets weird. It gets twisty. Yeah. Someone has to do it, you know? Yeah, well, and it reminds me of your comment earlier about how, you know, learning how to thrive in some of the situations that you were in, because I think that, you know, the the world of TV and books and everything doesn't necessarily make it look easy, but probably makes it look easier than it actually is. Yeah, the visual arts, um, they they have a, they have a, it's almost like music. There's a beat to it. And you don't recognize this when you're watching your movies and your TV shows, but your directors and your in the pacing of a show is almost like a musical beat. And it's going to be, we're going to introduce this, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen. And people are happy with a a a resolve. They're happy with a solution. Sometimes things don't always have an easy solution. And you have to learn to live with the fact that sometimes you are not going to solve the Rubik's cube. There's been plenty of time you've been at a party and you've done this at, you know, <laughs> and that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes there is no easy solution. Yeah. So tell me how, how Cade Taylor went from the idea in your head to the books on your shelf. It was kind of like a multi-step process. Uh, one of the biggest things was I, I went through a divorce myself, and um, I was I started to date uh, my wife now, and my wife uh, at the time was the CEO of a of a very large nonprofit. And she was fielding two hundred and ten, one hundred ninety emails a day, and jammed up schedule, and she was like so in the morning and she was like, so this is what I got going on. What do you, what do you have going on? I was like, uh, I'm going to go ride my bike. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 so I, I need to, to, um, extenuate this purpose of life. You know, I need, I need to, I've always been a person of action. I've always been a person of, move, of movement. So I, I need to, you know, do something. So I'm going to write a book. And she goes, really? Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you later on tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, uh, what are you doing? I'm writing. Oh, okay. I'm writing. Okay. Okay. And then, um, like I said, trust no one. Although not titled, had been the storyline had been bounced in my head for about 10 years. And uh, the book came out, and uh, people really um, liked it a lot, and they really um, took to it. So, um, once again, like I said, give the people what they want. The second K Taylor Grassman Smoke came out. And the reason we use Grassman Smoke is it's actually a term from criminal profile. It's when you can see something, but you can't get your hands around it. So it's like Grassman Smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see it, but you can't hold it. And then in that book, Cade is, is vexed with a situation where he can kind of see what's going on, but he can't get his hands around it. And then the third one was, was one more move. So the books started to tumble out, for lack of a better term, and they became building blocks for each other. And uh, Grassman Smoke was built off of the foundation created by Trust No One. 
And then we decided to make another addition. And one more move was built off of the two of them. And that's kind of how we're moving here. And um, much like um, Jack Reacher, Harry Bosch, there's a certain cadence and rhythm to those books. And I'm hoping to replicate that same cadence and rhythm for my readers. And this is not this is not a this is not an and or. This is a you know I obviously hope everybody enjoys um, all authors and all books. But yeah, that's what I'm trying to do here. Well, you mentioned to me that they've done better than expected. Well, I say done better than expected because I am not the type of author who has 600 copies of my books in my garage. <laughs> you see me at a farmer's market, you know, trying to hustle them and everything else. Um, I went through the traditional uh, literary agent uh, publishers, and uh, it, it was um, it's a very uphill battle. And there's certain things that go on in the publishing world, both in music and in in books, that a novice doesn't understand until they get into it. Mm -hmm. So um, my books are published by uh, a multimedia company, and they're available everywhere. Every independent bookstore, um, your bigger chains, Walmart, Target, um, obviously Amazon, the world's biggest bookseller. But you're not going to see it on the shelf. You're going to have to go into your independent bookstore and say, I want Trust No One by Michael Hearns. And look it up on their computer, and two days later, they'll have it for you. Um, my books are published by the world's largest book publisher. It's just that I don't have that large marketing machine behind me. Mm -hmm. there, there are no 15-foot you know, posters of me in front of Bond <laughs> and everything else. I've always thought those were a little strange. I mean, they seem normal when they're not you, but if they were you, you know? Well, it's, <laughs> yeah, the thing is, is that those, those moments are very fleeting. And mm -hmm. there's a certain mathematical equation to become a New York Times bestseller and other things. And there's certain... I won't say tricks. I'll just say there are certain techniques to, to do an app. But if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, with the exception of a few books, people are on there one week and they're gone the next. Um, it's great to say you're a New York Times bestseller. I could probably say that. I don't think that um, eventually someone might call me on it, but no, I can't. <laughs> True. Um, but the books are gaining traction. They're, they're selling in Australia, they're selling in England, they're selling. Um, across the U.S. Um, and people are starting to talk about them. So they're, they're more of a word of mouth type thing. Uh, they're all pulling very solid ratings on Amazon and other um, book rating companies or book rating platforms. And, you know, the podcast is, uh, has a, is rooted in creativity. And part of the problem with creativity is when you have to be your own marketer, you have to be your own social media director. Mm -hmm create content and you have to vacuum the rug, you have to take the dog to the bed, you gotta go to the supermarket. All those things get in the way of, of creativity. And, uh, creativity, you know, we see in our arts and movies a man or woman living in a cabin somewhere and painting or sculpting or writing and they seem to have unlimited funds and unlimited time. And the reality of life is that it doesn't always work that way. Uh, you got to get it in when you can. And I get it in sparks. And I say to my wife all the time, I have to write today. And she says, well, you say that to me like you're, like you're telling me. Yeah, like, like I go, yeah, because if I, if I announce it to you, then I know I'll have to do it. But if I don't announce it, then I can like, you know, slack off. And then once the books start going, they start to do take on a life of their own Cade. Kay does wake me up at three o'clock in the morning. He, you know, it's like, he's like, he's like problems, problems, <laughs> problems. You know, he, Cade wakes me up and Cade, when Cade, he's on my mind quite a lot when I'm writing. Yeah. 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 I, I always love those moments when characters talk to me. Oh, and they do. Yeah. Oh, they do. They so they do. do. And they do. I mean, like, uh, unless you've done it, it's hard to explain. It's like, did you ever run with the Bulls and Pamela? No, but if you've done it, you remember it. The other thing. <laughs> and, and the people you write, I mean, 
they get in there and, and, you know, people don't recognize sometimes that when you're writing these, these books, um, you're, you're writing dialogue for four people at one time and you're setting scene and you're setting stage. And, you know, they, in my books, you'll hear about the air conditioner turning on. You hear about the door swinging open and rubbing against the carpet. You hear, you know, all these things are brought into to my writing because I write very descriptively. Because once again, I write from a cinematic point of view, so I I visualize things the way I write, you know. So yeah, it's it's daunting to to coordinate and and uh, choreograph all those voices and all those things, and some of them have different dialects and accents and things. So yeah, yeah. But I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that, again, TV presents this image of, you know, the writer who has all day to just sit at their laptop and write their book and doesn't have to go to the grocery store and doesn't have to deal with calling the plumber and, you know, any of that and all of the things that get in the way. And I think that it's really, really easy for a lot of people to say, well, you know, I said I wanted to write a book, but when I sat down, I had to answer the door and then the dog started barking and then my kids came home from school and, oh, well, I guess I'm just not a creative person because there's, you know, it can't happen because I can't sit down this way and have eight hours to spend just writing a book, which I'm not sure that anybody really spends eight solid. Well, okay, I'm sure somebody does, but, you know, I think that we we tell ourselves that it has to look one way, but reality often isn't that way. And I'm not sure how often we leave room for that reality and and find ways around it. Like, you know, telling somebody I'm going to write today so that, you know, you have to do it. You know, that is such a simple thing, but it works. I've definitely done that before, you know, called somebody and said, I don't need you to care about this. I just need you to hear me say it. And then I'll tell you that I actually did it later. That's all I need. And it sounds nuts, but it works. Yeah, we have to uh, we have to get away from measuring our our, our, our life against others mm-hmm. and recognizing that we are our own people and we are our own spirit. We are our own. Uh, well, I'm not going to say any names, but there's a very very famous artist, and he was my next door neighbor, and I would I would see him, and we'd be talking, and I'd go, "Hey, uh, why don't you put some orange in there?" He goes, okay, I'll do that for you. You know, <laughs> you don't have any idea that this painting is going to sell for $55,000. That orange part down the night. And so it wasn't that I was stepping into this creativity. It's just that you recognize that you have a place in everybody's sphere. And you have a place in your own sphere. And you may not hit the tennis ball like Serena Williams. And you may not hit the golf ball like Tiger Woods. But you're still going to do it. and you know, the boss going to go over the net and the boss going to go in the hole. And you may not have the panache. You may not have the style. It may not have the marketing machine. It may not have the corporate sponsorship, but it's you and it's yours. And I used to, you know, I, I, I used to work in a part of Miami that was very affluent. And sometimes these young officers would come into a house with me and they would see this $22, $30 million home. And they would, oh, man, look at this. Oh, man, look at that. And then re- I would remind them, when you close your eyes at night, your house is just as dark. Ooh. And, yeah. you know, so just because so-and-so has their artwork, you know, in a major airport somewhere and yours is hanging on a refrigerator, it does not make yours any less desirable. You know, we all have a seat at the table. And you have to just be uh, gracious, uh, appreciative, um, happy, thankful, and while you're there, be a little productive and make it happen for you. But don't don't think that because so and so selling books like like out the door, and I'm getting you know two sales a week. The two people who read them like it, you know, yeah, and that's where we are. And it's two more than other people who never wrote a book in the first place. Yeah, and you know, the other thing also is when you make a movie or a film, um, truthfully speaking, you, you you make three movies. You 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 make the movie that you you wrote that got greenlighted, then you make the movie you filmed, and then you make the movie you edit, and that's the final product. But you're really never 
in the, 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 same, the same frame all the time. But when you're making a movie, I mean, go to any movie theater, watch a movie and sit through the credits and look at all the names. When you write a book, when you write a book, it is, it is your name that's on the back of the spine and no one else's. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot. And the same thing being a painter. It's your name at the bottom of the artwork and no one else's. So those, those are solo uh, projects. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that gets lost in it, I think we, we, we want to focus on, I wrote the book or I did the painting or, or I made the movie and that, that the book or the movie or the painting or whatever it is, is the important part. But I think really the important part is you had a call to create something and you listened to it and hopefully you did it because you enjoyed doing it. And that, you know, the fact that you finished the book is the byproduct and not the sole focus of the fact that you listened to that creative call and you felt the joy of creating the thing. And anything that comes after that is a bonus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just like you say, you know, the picture that's hanging on the refrigerator. Well, if you if you or whoever drew that picture that gave it to you drew it for the joy of it, of course, it has just as much value as the one that hangs in the museum, whether anybody else ever sees it or not. Yeah. And also in my 20s, I saw an interview with um, Dave Thomas, the founder of the Wendy's hamburger chain. Mm-hmm. And somebody called in and said, yeah, I have a question for Mr. Thomas. How do you feel uh, holding all these people to minimum wage while you make so much money? And the moderator tried to cut the caller off. And, and Dave Thomas said, no, let me think that. He goes, I'll think that. He goes, um, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. We employ a lot of people. And he went into some some business stats. But then he also said, I'm comfortable with it because I took the risk. I mortgaged my house. I leveraged all my credit cards to get the first one he started. I, I, I took the risk. And so when you write that book and you put your name on the spine of it, you're, 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 you're taking the risk. You're putting your, your, your work out there to be reviewed, to be read, to be criticized, to be cherished to be thrown away, to be a keepsake, whatever it may be, you're, you're taking the risk. And, um, you know, there's a lot to be, to be said for that. And when you, when you obviously by my gender, you can tell I've never given birth. (laughs) I've had many people say to me that upon giving birth, all the pain goes away. The thought, all the, all the pain and all the, of labor uh, of childbirth is forgotten and when, when the book when the book is written and it's it's done you forget about all the late nights all the the, the fretting all the worrying all the, the stuff that went done and um in my case many times after the book is done i've read it so many times myself i've gone over it so many times and i'm ready to move on to the next one it, it may not even be out available to the public yet and i've already mentally moved on to the next mm-hmm. one i have re- my, my wife i go why do you keep reading your book and, and i'm looking for errors and you know everything there's yeah and, and there's always people who live in fine print who are going ah you know on page 116 there's a typo yeah i know and there's a typo i get it yeah go through any book you can find a typo yep yes you are it also gives people they, they say those things to you because they want to have a connection to you as well it's not that that um, they're being highly critical. It's their way of saying to you, I read your book and I want to have something to talk to you about. So you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Tell me about the typo 116. <laughs> yeah. And then tell me what you thought of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and I. I think that, that that's right. That you know, you do, you do reach a point where you have to be done with one project or you'll just obsess with over it and drive yourself crazy. And it just gets to where it's time to move on to the next one. And even if it was, I mean, unless you had a truly, truly horrific experience doing whatever that project was, the joy of doing it, and the energy of doing it is going to make it 
something that you jump into again anyway, just like people say about giving birth, you know, like you forgot, or maybe it's not even so much that you forgot, it's that it's not as important, you know, how painful that was. And now it's time to go do it again because the excitement and the joy of it outweighs. Yeah, the the release is stronger Mm -hmm. than the toil. Um, I thought that that trust no one my first book was going to be i'm going to say a one and done i i already had an idea of another character i was going to do in los angeles and i started getting emails and i started getting phone calls and i started getting um uh, and social media and stuff i started getting comments about when's the next one when's the next one i can't wait for the next one so i thought okay so now that's you know, a good motivator too <laughs> yeah you know it and if you still have gas in the tank, why not? You know, it's like you pick up a hitchhiker. I don't suggest you do that, by the way. <laughs> hitchhiker, you let that person out, and now there's another hitchhiker. You still got gas in the tank. Why turn the car off? You just pick up the second one and go down the road until that journey is over. And if you still got gas in the tank, you pick up the third one. You know, it's, it's, it's a terrible analogy, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's no need to change direction if people have an attraction or an affiliation to something. Um, and they like Cade. They like Cade Taylor a lot. And they like the fact that he's he's flawed. He's not perfect. Um, and he also tells you all of these stories in the first person. All of my books are written in the first person. So it's not like I'm saying, um, you know, um, the guy jumped over the fence. Kate says, I jumped over the fence. Mm-hmm. I my pants, but I jumped over the fence. <laughs> so given your your work in the, the TV and film industry, what do you think is next for Kate? Do you think that there's a possibility that there might be a movie or a TV series or anything like that? Would uh, you want to go there? I would. Uh, and I would welcome all opportunities at any level. And any artist in their in their field should open up themselves to any opportunity that comes their way. Anyone that says to you, well, I'm just a painter and I don't want myself on a Disney mug. Well, you know, you gotta think about that. You know, I mean, I, I have a friend of mine, uh, he lived next door to me in college and he is an incredible artist and he's worked for Marvel for 30 years. And he's, he's, I don't want to say that he, he's done Spider-Man, he's done the Hulk, he's done Captain America. He's, he, he's a demigod in that field. And I saw him about a year ago or so, or drinking, having a drink or something. And I said, so how, you know, how do you feel about that? And he goes, well, you know, I always want my stuff, you know, hanging in a museum. And I'm like, buddy, when you write an edition, it, it sells 500,000 copies on the first day. It is tacked up in every kid's bedroom from Tokyo to Tacoma to Tel Aviv. People are seeing your work. It may not be where you thought you were going to be 30 years ago, but you're bringing joy. You're bringing, you're bringing the writer's story to life with your, with your, with your illustrations. So, you know, I, I, I think that we should all kind of recognize that if you have the ability to bring something to somebody and I've had people tell me that, Oh, I read your book and um, it really, it brought, it brought this emotion out of me or brought this feeling out of me. Well, then that's, that's good. Letter, even if it's an unintended consequence, it's good. Yeah. 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 And I, I'll bet you that your Marvel friend has has been seen by way more people than would have seen him in a museum anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's, he's comfortable with it now. He really is. In fact, I, I don't want to reveal who he is or what he is, but he has major projects in front of him. So in answer to your question, yeah, there is an A-list actor in Hollywood who has um, expressed an interest in portraying Cade. Um, Hollywood puts out a lot of products, and we see only like 2 or 3% of them. There's a lot of stuff that gets shown on a cruise ship in the Indian Ocean you never see. And um, what possibilities there are for for kate taylor to be brought into a different multimedium um are they're, they're limitless and there are people who read the books and say i would love to see this in, the, in a tv show i'd love to see this in a movie 
So because I write in a cinematic point of view, and I'm going to, I'm going to give this thing to you again, because I write in a cinematic point of view, uh, they're very easily adaptable for that. The, the language, the dialogue, the scenes of the book are very easy to be converted into film. And I think that has writers. Uh, the example I gave you before, well, you know, me and Nancy, we drove to Kansas City. And it's not just Gen Xers. It's, it's we as a society are becoming more visual. Mm-hmm. And when you read a book, you also want to have a visual imagery. And the days of Ernest Hemingway saying, I, I, I sail on a boat. The ocean is big. My boat is small. My boat sails on the ocean. You know, we get it, Ernest. We get it. <laughs> but today's readers, not not to besmirch a classic, but today's readers want to know, you know, is the boat made of wood? Is it made out of fiberglass? Is it a leak? How many times have you painted it? How did you get that boat? Where'd you buy the boat? You know, why do you like that boat so much? Why are you on the sea? Why are you on? You know, we want a more visual presentation. So when you bring the reader into this world, and Kay does that because Kay talks to you in the first person. So people say all the time, I feel like I was right there with Kay when this was happening. Because it's not a narrator telling you. It's Kay. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I will be really, really curious to see where Cade goes from here and see if he ends up on a screen. And I hope that, you know, if he does, that it's a very faithful adaptation. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, there'll, there'll have to be um, some tweaking here and there. But um, the books take place in, um, trust no one, is February of 1998. Grasp and Smoke is October, and one more move is November. So one of the concerns is, you know, it's very expensive to, to do a period piece. And even though it seems like 1998 was not that far away, it truthfully yeah. was 11. So, um, it, but these books don't have to be a period piece. They can be modern things. I, it all, really, it really all started because I had needed to justify why Kate had a pager, you know. <laughs> and so I said it there, and now I'm kind of stuck in that in that in that uh, in that chronological time frame. But uh, yeah. You know, these these are highly adaptable to 2023, 2020. Yeah. Adaptable in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, I hope that it happens and, and we'll see where you go from there. Well, I hope so too. And I, I appreciate those those kind sentiments. Um I like I said, uh, people seem to really like Cade and he, he doesn't always save the day um perfectly. He doesn't always save the day by himself. He doesn't always there's a lot of things that go right, a lot of things go wrong in these books. And um he he is human. He has frailties. He has emotions. He has, um, but he stays in the fight. He stays in the fight, and he fights. Uh, he, he plays the game very well. He's very street smart, and he's in all these books. I bring an element of law enforcement and an element of that lifestyle that you've never seen before in books or TVs before or movies. Um, so yeah, all three books so far, um, Cade has exactly the action sequences or something that's never been done before. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, that'll be a good challenge for whoever decides to adapt him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's doable. It's yeah. Doable. We're not hanging from a blimp over Paris. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be curious to see what happens. And I really, really appreciate you coming and talking with me today. That's our show for this week. My thanks to Michael Hearns for joining me and to you for listening. Please leave a review of the show and in it, tell us about the creative thing that you do just for the love of it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I appreciate it so much. It really helps the show find new listeners. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. 
You can find it at fycuriosity.com, and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.